Comedy allows us to escape our reality and laugh out loud. Laughter is healthy. It is medicine for the soul. But the people who have made comedy their profession often live in a darker world than their audience could ever imagine. Look at Robin Williams, Chris Farley, and John Belushi. They were the best of the best and have all been deemed comedy legends. But when the cameras were off, there was suffering that consumed them. Phil Hartman is one of those legends as well, but his tragic death has no comparison. He was not ready to die on that day in May 1998. It was someone else's plan, not his. This is Killer Heart to Hearts. Welcome back to Killer Heart to Hearts. I am Will. And I'm Elise. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite comedians, Phil Hartman. Now, it's no secret that many comedians have a lot of demons to work through. There's an added pressure for them to be funny all the time, and many end in tragedy. But Phil's death struck so many people in a different way because he didn't die of an overdose or suicide. He was murdered, and the details of his case are truly heartbreaking. Yeah, I remember when this happened, it just being, like, completely shocking. Like, everybody was just gobsmacked by it, you know? Like, because you think of a comedian dying before his time or her time, and immediately you think of drugs or, you know, some sort of self-defeating behavior. But in Phil's case, it's just it just came out of nowhere and it was just so shocking. Yeah. And I think also when he died, nobody thought of drugs, you know, because he just wasn't that kind of comedian. You were like, but Phil Hartman like that. He's he's pure. Like he's just he's everything that you hope that a comedian's going to be like. He's Troy McClure. Exactly. Yeah. This one hurt. Yeah. So that's why we thought that this would be a really good one to include for this season. Yeah. So what do you think? You want to get into it? Yes. All right. This is called The Trouble That Loomed. What's the first question that comes to your mind when you hear of a murder? Okay, the first question might be how— But I guarantee the second question is why. No matter what the answer is, it will never satisfy us. But we still always ask the question. But what's worse than having an answer you don't like? Not having an answer at all. At 3.45 a.m. on May 28, 1998, Ron Douglas was awoken by incredibly loud banging on his front door. Annoyed, he opened the door already knowing who it would be. He was ready to curse out the woman on the other side. But before he could get a word out, she said to him, I killed Phil, and I don't know why. The Phil she was referring to is comedian and SNL alum Phil Hartman, and the woman confessing to her friend was Phil's wife, Bryn. 
Now, I'm not sure if it was the smell of booze on her breath or the cocaine that she had been known to snort, but for some reason, in that moment, Ron didn't believe her allegations. When she left his house hours earlier, she had appeared starved for attention. She didn't want to go home, but Ron insisted as it was after midnight. So maybe that's all this was, an overdramatic cry for attention. But when she opened her purse and a Smith & Wesson gun fell out, panic set in. Vicki Jo Omdahl was a high school dropout who had dreams of becoming a star. Born in 1958 in Thief River Falls, Minnesota, she met and married Douglas Torfin when she was just 19 years old. After eight years of small-town married life, Vicky called it quits. She decided to make the move out west to follow her passion. She had done some small modeling gigs back home, but L.A. was a whole new beast. She changed her name to Bryn and waited for the calls to come in. Oh, that's not how Hollywood works? That was news to Bryn Omdahl. Maybe if she dated Rob Reiner, that would help. Nope, that didn't seem to work either. I guess this Hollywood thing is harder than she thought. But if Bryn wasn't having any luck on the acting front, she sure was finding the raging parties that L.A. had to offer. She began partying hard and regularly. She discovered cocaine, and that became her go-to drug of choice. It got so bad that she went into treatment for her addiction. After a brief stay in rehab, she returned to setting her sights on what she moved to Hollywood for. Fame. Hmm, maybe Phil Hartman would be the answer to all of her problems. Phil was an introverted extrovert. Or maybe he was an extroverted introvert. Or maybe he had two different personas. However you want to describe him, he was born to be on TV, but was quiet and introspective at home. He had been married twice before he met the tall, blonde, beautiful Bryn. Both marriages had started out hot and heavy, but quickly fizzled out and lost their luster. It seemed all of his energy went to his audiences, and he had nothing left to give to either of his wives at the end of the day. Phil Hartman was a born showman. He always had an incredible talent for impersonating celebrities. He was brilliant at it. His friends would constantly ask him to imitate their favorites, and he would captivate friends of friends daily. But that was all it was, just a fun, weird talent he had while working as a graphic designer. Like Bryn, he longed for more. But unlike Bryn, he had the talent to back it up. In 1975, Phil attended a show at a new improv school that had just opened up called Groundlings. He didn't know anything about it, but when the cast asked for a volunteer from the audience, Phil shot his hand up. He had never seen anything like this and desperately wanted to participate. When he got up on stage, he took over the spotlight. He was electric up there and had the audience and cast members roaring with laughter. He had found his people and enrolled in the school immediately after. 
Today, the groundlings are known for alumni such as Melissa McCarthy, Conan O'Brien, Maya Rudolph, Kristen Wiig, Jimmy Fallon, Will Ferrell, just to name a few, and Phil Hartman helped to pave the way for the likes of those uber-talented comedians. This is where he met Paul Rubens, who is best known for developing the character Pee Wee Herman. He brought Phil on to co-write Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and then starred alongside Paul in Pee Wee's Playhouse. This would launch his career. Yeah, so that's the thing about Saturday Night Live is it's oftentimes the first time a new or a young comedian will become a recognized comedian. But as you see, Phil was working before SNL. He was doing, you know, Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse. Um, I saw him in Three Amigos, and I think that was before he was in SNL. Like, he was working. He was one of those guys that you just saw, you know, and he was always really funny, uh, and you just saw him around and stuff. And then when he got SNL, it was like, holy shit. Yeah, you don't get an audition on SNL when you're absolutely a novice at comedy. (laughs) I mean, everybody has at least been studying the craft or has been in things before. Um, So... Although, yeah, Phil was not a household name before SNL, he definitely was in that circle. Although Phil wasn't a household name yet, Bryn Omdahl set her sights and didn't let go when she met Phil at a party in 1986. She could obviously see the potential in him and saw her ticket to stardom if she stuck with him. She wanted a successful Hollywood man by her side, who could help her get into the door, and he wanted a beautiful woman on his arm. It was a match made in heaven. He knew about Bryn's rocky past with drugs, but it didn't seem to bother him too much. She was funny, charming, charismatic, and had him smitten almost immediately. They married a year later. Soon after, in 1986, Phil was invited to his biggest audition of his life, Saturday Night Live. He was highly recommended to SNL creator Lorne Michaels by fellow Groundlings alum John Lovitz. And of course, Phil crushed the audition. SNL was an almost guaranteed shot straight to stardom, and that was certainly the case for the 38-year-old Phil Hartman. So together, they moved to New York City, This was Phil's third marriage, so he knew he wanted to put extra effort into this one. He didn't want it to be another dead end. Unfortunately, Bryn would prove to be a hell of a lot harder to please and handle than either of his other wives by a long shot. Bryn gave birth to their first child in 1989, a baby boy named Sean. When Phil's second wife, Lisa Jarvis, heard about the birth, She sent the new parents a card wishing them congratulations and all the best. A normal person would accept that card graciously and say thank you. But not Bryn Hartman. Bryn wrote Lisa a scathing letter back, telling her to never, ever contact Phil, her, or their family ever again. And if she did, she would rip her eyes out. 
This letter went on for two pages. Lisa called her ex-husband because she was shook to the core by the vitriol in this letter. She needed him to be aware of who he was really married to. His response? You should have seen the first draft she wanted to send you. Lisa was appalled. Before she hung up, she needed to ask, She doesn't have a gun, does she? He told her she does. For protection. Let's not forget, Bryn had an agenda when she married Phil Hartman. He was supposed to help her with her career. Now, whether he knew that or not is another story. But she soon made it clear that she wasn't happy with her lack of work coming in. Again, I can't stress it enough when I say sitting by the phone waiting for it to ring is never a tactic for success. Bryn started accompanying him to the writer's room at SNL. Sure, she didn't have anything to contribute, but she got to flirt with all the guys. Maybe one of them could help her out. She did manage to make it in the opening credits for Saturday Night Live. You know, when they show each cast member with the voiceover guy saying each person's name. If you watch old episodes with Phil and they introduce him, he's sitting at a table at a diner atmosphere and there's a blonde woman sitting across from him. You can only see the back of her head, but yeah, that's Bryn. Apparently she kept turning her head towards the camera so her face could be seen in the shot, but the director kept insisting that she turn it back and look at Phil. She was so difficult during these takes that they just kept the camera rolling and cut around her head turning. If you look closely though, you can even see her earring dancing back and forth as a result. Now this little acting stint wasn't going to catapult her career or anything. It was more of a bone he threw his wife to help satisfy her. Did it work? Of course not. I love when people get upset with other people, most often their significant others who are in the entertainment industry and who have already made it, when they don't magically bestow upon this person a career of their own. I never understood that. It's like, yeah, your husband's Phil Hartman, but you're a shitty actor. Like, why do you think that it's just going to be granted to you? Like, I, I never got that. Yeah, I do think that it's a reason why a lot of times when you see, you know, actors with their significant other, they're either not in the business at all or they're pretty much on par with the other one. Um, it's hard when you have one who's riding the coattails of the other one. I don't think that's ever going to be a recipe for success. No. And especially in Bryn's case, like we watched a couple of, uh, we saw a couple of clips. She was not a talented person. Like she wasn't good at it. Yeah. I mean, the clips that we did see, because this was all the roles that she got, were one line. So um, she was undeniably beautiful. But I think that she was definitely riding on her looks to get her to where she wanted to go. And that's only going to take you so far. 
Um, sometimes people are incredibly lucky and they get a break, but in her case, that was not that was not in the cards for her. Phil's success on SNL allowed their family to be bi-coastal. They had a place in New York for when Phil was filming Saturday Night Live, but they also bought a beautiful home in Encino, California, which is a very affluent but suburban area of Los Angeles. Phil's professional life could not have been better at this point. He won an Emmy as a writer on SNL. He was beloved by everyone, was getting all the attention imaginable on late-night talk shows. But what's the point of all of that if you can't share it with the ones you love and who are closest to you? Bryn resented Phil's success. He provided her with everything she could ever want, except for her acting career. She felt ignored. She fought with him constantly. Why wasn't he doing more for her? Why is he working so much? Why is he ignoring her? She was incapable of being happy for him and proud of him. At night, he would pretend to be asleep so the fighting would stop. No one really knows what it's like behind closed doors. However, despite all their troubles, in 1992, they welcomed a little girl into the world named Bergen. Phil was over the moon. He had never seen a baby so beautiful in his life. At that time, they were happy. The family seemed perfect, but that happiness would prove to be fleeting. Bryn was known to show up at SNL just before showtime and berate Phil, so the wind was sucked out of him just before he needed to step out on stage. One of the cast members saw Bryn in the bathroom snorting coke, and she turned to her and offered her some. At the time, the cast member didn't think anything of it because that's just what you saw in the 90s in the bathroom with a show like this. It didn't dawn on her that Bryn was a recovering drug addict that was relapsing in plain sight. After eight years at SNL, Phil decided it was time for him to move on. With the new generation of castmates, Phil was outgrowing his time there. He was becoming the straight man to Chris Farley's slapstick comedy segments. His peers had moved on, so it was time for him to as well. Besides, he had been offered a role on a new TV show starring David Foley, Stephen Root, and Andy Dick called News Radio. This show brought him and Bryn back to L.A. full-time. Bryn was excited for the possibility of getting a role on this show. I mean, what good is it to be married to one of the stars if you can't get on the show? The show was a huge success, in part thanks to Phil. But not at all thanks to Bryn. She never made it on that show. And that infuriated her. She was sure Phil was doing this on purpose to sabotage her and keep all of the glory for himself. Ah, yes, I'm sure he loved coming home to an angry wife every day and dealing with her wrath, so he asked the writers and showrunner to not write a part for her. Or, and I'm just throwing this out there as speculation, maybe they saw her crazy side, saw how she treated Phil, 
saw how unstable she was and decided they didn't want any part of that. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before the wheels came off. Bryn rarely missed an opportunity to party with Phil's news radio family. If Phil couldn't help her, she needed to keep herself relevant by showing up and reminding them that she's an actress too. Andy Dick, who has been very open about his drug abuse in the past, offered Bryn cocaine at one of these parties. He likely wasn't aware of her history and her fight for sobriety. Who knows if she even was sober at this time? She had certainly struggled in the past where she was doing bumps a few years earlier in the SNL studio bathroom. But whether she was currently using is a contentious subject to this day among Phil Hartman's closest friends, including John Lovitz, who has been outspoken about blaming Andy Dick for what was soon to come. In April of 1998, Bryn Hartman turned 40 years old. She did not take it well. She had always feared aging. She didn't have the career that she had hoped for. And she was married to a talented comedian on a hit TV show. She wasn't Bryn Omdahl anymore. She wasn't even Bryn Hartman. She was Phil Hartman's wife. Phil was a busy man. He was in high demand and he worked a lot. He wasn't home as much as Bryn thought he should be. He didn't pay attention to her the way she thought he should. He didn't communicate with her the way she thought he should. Perhaps Phil could have made more of an effort in all of these areas. But was that really what this was about? Would she have been happier if she saw more of her husband? Or did she just not want him to have the career that she thought she deserved? Perhaps he worked so much to avoid being home and fighting with his wife constantly. Whatever the reason, Phil Hartman clearly had no idea just how angry and resentful his wife was becoming. She was a ticking time bomb, and that bomb was about to explode. On May 28, 1998, Bryn had dinner with a friend. She had a few drinks while out and complained about her favorite subject, Phil. It didn't take much to get her fired up. After dinner, Bryn wanted to keep the night going. She tried to persuade her friend to stay out with her, grab another drink, anything to keep her from going home. The only thing home had to offer was anger and rage. And tonight, she wanted to have fun. Her friend delicately declined Bryn's offer. She could tell Bryn was gearing up for a long night, and her friend was not up for that, so they parted ways. To keep the night going, Bryn calls her good friend Ron Douglas. She asks if she can come to his house, and he agrees. While there, she has another drink. She continues her rant about Phil to Ron for as long as he can stand it. A little after midnight, Ron tells Bryn that she needs to go home, but she resists. She just wants to stay with Ron. He insists that she needs to go home. It's late and she's hopped up and she won't wind down. Around 12.30 a.m. she complies 
and heads back to her home, where Phil and their children are likely asleep. What happened over the next few hours is not known for sure. Perhaps Bryn woke Phil and picked a fight with him. But in Phil Hartman fashion, he may have walked away and returned to bed to end the argument, which would have pissed her off even more. Or perhaps she came home and stewed in her anger until she made the fatal decision that followed. Regardless of what led her to the decision, at some point, she entered the master bathroom and opened the lockbox located on a shelf in the closet. In the box was a Smith & Wesson 38 revolver. She took it out, pointed it at Phil, who was asleep in bed, and fired three shots, killing him instantly. Around 3.25 a.m., Bryn calls Ron Douglas and tells him Phil isn't home, but he left a note saying, I'm going out for the night. I'll be back. Love you. She tells Ron she doesn't want to be alone and asks if she can come back over. He says, no, it's too late. 20 minutes later, there is incredibly loud banging at his front door. He opens the door, ready to chew her out. But before he can say anything, she says, don't yell at me. Phil yells at me all the time. She lets herself in. By the looks of her and the smell of her breath, Ron can tell that she is out of her mind drunk and maybe high on cocaine as well. She tries to sit on the couch but slides off. I killed Phil and I don't know why, she blurts out. Ron dismisses this statement due to her condition. That's not possible, so why give that notion a second thought? At this point, there's nothing Ron can do. He can't send her away, not like this. She complains of stomach pains. He is concerned that she may have overdosed on pills. She runs to the bathroom and throws up. He gives her water and hot tea to settle her and help her sober up. She then opens her purse to look for something and a gun falls out. This alarms Ron immediately. Why the hell does she have a gun? See, she says, I told you I killed Phil. Panic sets in on Ron. He immediately checks the chamber and is relieved to see all six bullets still in it. Around 6 a.m., Bryn finally appears to sober up enough to drive home, but Ron follows behind her to make sure that she makes it back okay. He throws the gun in his trunk so it's far from Bryn. When they arrive back at the home, Ron escorts the hysterical woman through the house. When they approach the bedroom, Bryn lets out a blood-curdling scream. Oh my God, he's dead. Ron looks on in absolute horror. This is not some nightmare. This was no mistake. Phil Hartman was dead. Ron uses the phone in the living room to call 911. After police are dispatched, Ron wants out of the house. Bryn has barricaded herself in the master bedroom where Phil lies and is wailing uncontrollably. Ron heads for the front door, but it is dead bolted shut and he can't find the key. Suddenly, 10-year-old Sean enters the living room, likely awoken by the commotion 
and Ron asks him if he knows where the key is kept. He does. The two get the door open and escape to a sea of police officers waiting for them on the other side. Sean goes to one officer, unaware of what exactly happened inside his home. Ron turns over the revolver to the officer, letting him know this was the weapon used. Upon further inspection, it was confirmed Ron was mistaken. There were, in fact, three rounds used in that gun. At 6.38 a.m., one final gunshot rings through the house. Unsure of where it came from, officers enter slowly. Ron informs them there is also an eight-year-old girl still inside. Officers open each room carefully. When they reach Bergen, an officer picks her up and takes her outside with her brother. Police then devise a plan as to how to reach Bryn without causing further harm to her or the situation. Two officers set up outside the master bedroom window. The curtains are drawn. They announce themselves outside and tell her to come out with her hands up. When there is no response, one officer uses a brick to break the window. The glass shatters. When they enter, they are met with horrible bloodshed. Phil is lying in bed with three bullets ripped through him, and Bryn is propped up next to him with the back of her head blown out. She had used her Charter Arms 38 caliber five-shooter to end her own life. This was her legacy now. Bryn Hartman would never be known as an actress or a model, or even an amazing mother. She is a murderer and knew there was no way out of it, so she controlled her own narrative in the end and left the world on her own terms. Phil Hartman once said, quote, I think in my old age I've come to realize just how precious everything is, and I try to value the many blessings that have been bestowed upon me. But there's also this sense of vulnerability if fortune took a turn for the worse, and that you live with awareness that anything could happen in this world. End quote. It seems Phil had a deep-seated awareness of how fortunate he was, as well as the trouble that loomed. Well, it seems to me that Vicki Jo Omdahl got exactly what she was looking for. Notoriety? Exactly. She wanted fame. She got fame. Look, folks, there's more than one way to be famous. You can be infamous. Right. You know, it's much, much easier to just go this route. Of course, you know, we're joking. But when fame is your driving force, it's the only thing you seek. Like, what does that really say about you? And what I mean by that is it, it's got to be more than just fame. Like, there's got to be a more altruistic reason. Like, we've already established that, you know, Bryn Hartman wasn't really a talented person. Um, but she wanted the fame. And I don't know. Like, I think it's a, it, it gets dangerous when fame is the only thing you're looking for. You don't have anything of substance behind you, pushing you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Bryn Hartman was fictitious. You know, she she put on this name, I think, to help 
be someone who she wasn't. And in that, she lost what, like, the meaning of life was, as, as cliche as that sounds. That's kind of how it feels. Right. She was more of a, like, a groupie kind of, in a way. Exactly. She, she wanted, really was. Yeah, she wanted all the parties and all the drugs and, you know, she wanted this, that, and the third, but without any of the the substance that goes with it. She just wanted the party. Well, I think she did want the fame. She just didn't want to work at it. You know, she didn't want to put that work in. She, I, as far as I know, you know, she wasn't in acting classes. She wasn't actually trying to learn the craft, but rather she was like, oh, you know, let me date this celebrity. Let me, you know, weasel my way into this crowd. Um, Because Phil had friends other than his celebrity friends, but Bryn never wanted him to hang out with those friends. If he did, she didn't understand what the point was. She was like, well, why aren't you hanging out with your SNL friends? He's like, well, or I why have other friends too. Yeah, or why aren't we doing lines with Andy Dick? Right. She, I was going to say she's a complicated person, but I think she's actually a very simple person. Um, she was very simple about what she wanted out of life, but just so such deep-seated anger for not being able to get that. And resentment for those that did. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for tuning in, you guys. And be sure to catch the next episode of Killer Heart to Hearts. Killer Heart to Hearts is produced, written, and hosted by Elise Budell and William Cannon and is engineered by Jordan Calhoun.